When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B25 Diskindo What did it mean to be king of Armenia? To Rome and Parthia, it was little more than a glorified buffer state, but that was never the story the Armenians told themselves. Their sense of history at least went back to the Orontids, the kings who'd gone lion-hunting with Cyrus the Great and gracefully sidestepped the conquests of Alexander. In 190 BC, the Orontids were replaced by the Artoxiads, heirs of the Seleucid general Artoxes, who founded the new Armenian capital of Artoxata. The city was sited far to the north, at the confluence of the Araxes and Axurian rivers, on a plan supposedly designed by Hannibal of Carthage. According to Strabo, the Punic general and exile dreamt of raising an Armenian Carthage to replace the one conquered by Rome. Hannibal wasn't the first to recognize the site's potential, and Artaxata was built on ancient foundations. The original builders were already lost to history, but their monuments endured. All across the kingdom, huge stone fortresses crowned mountaintops, and alien writing marked the remains of temples and tombs. Scholars might recognize the script as one still used in Mesopotamia, but the language was already indecipherable. In fact, for the next 2,000 years, the story of the Urartians would remain untold, looming like a fortress and silent as a tomb. Artaxiad power reached its zenith under the rule of Tigranes the Great, conqueror of the Near East and terror of the Republic. It was Tigranes who built the southern capital of Tigranocerta to oversee a freshly won empire stretching from Anatolia to the Syrian desert. But ironically, it was also under Tigranes that Armenia lost its independence. Its Roman conqueror, Pompey the Great, was gracious in victory, allowing Tigranes to keep his throne and Armenia its pride. 
But Tigranes' descendants never matched his success, and his line died out during the reign of Augustus. The end of the Artoxiads ushered in an era of conflict. Armies from Parthia, Rome, and Rome's Iberian clients repeatedly invaded the kingdom, installing and deposing kings with an alarming frequency. And while the long reign of the Arsacid king Tiridates I brought decades of stability, the cycle resumed shortly after his death. Eventually, another Arsacid king, Volagasis III, was granted rule by Trajan, moving the Armenian capital from Artaxata to nearby Vagarshapat. After all the rough treatment by Near Eastern powers, the dignity of Armenian kingship was no longer a given. But under the right circumstances, it could still be aspired to. After all, the land itself was still fierce and ancient and intensely beautiful, and it still took a special man to rule it. So, who exactly was King Sohamus of Armenia? Well, technically, he was an Arsacid, a member of the Parthian royal dynasty, but only in a very remote sense. His great-great-grandfather, the last Emocene priest-king Gaius Julius Sohamus, had Arsacid connections through his mother, Iotapa of Comagene. Actually, if you really wanted to get technical, the whole Comagenian royal family was descended from a splinter branch of the Orontids. So having connections to two Armenian ruling dynasties wasn't bad for a start. Sohamus was also both a Syrian noble and a former Roman consul, which wasn't quite as odd as it sounds. During the 2nd century AD, enough Syrians had migrated to Rome for the Roman satirist Juvenal to claim the Orontes now emptied into the Tiber. What was odd was that Sohamus hadn't been sent to rule Armenia as a Roman governor, the typical pattern for ex-consuls, but instead as a Roman client king. It was likely an accommodation to the Parthians and Armenians, who opposed direct Roman rule but would tolerate the fiction of independent kingship. Either way, while he might take issue with the remark about the Orontes emptying into the Tiber, Sohamus was forced to admit that the shortest road from Syria to Armenia apparently ran through Rome. By 160 AD, Sohamus had ruled Armenia for 16 years. Peaceful neighbors meant a peaceful kingdom, and in this regard, Sohamus was lucky. To the west, the Roman emperor Antoninus Pius was in the 22nd year of his golden reign. To the north, the Iberian king Pherosmanes III was Rome's devoted ally doing his best to keep Caucasian nomads far from the Euphrates. And to the south and east, the latest Parthian king, Volagasis IV, had limited himself to reclaiming Cherusina on the Persian Gulf. The main changes the year brought were in Sohamus's immediate family. His elder brother Longinus, high priest of Elagabal in their home city of Emesa, had recently died. Per tradition, Longinus's eldest son, the 25-year-old Julius Bassianus, would succeed him. 
Anticipating his future role, Longinus had named the boy using the old Phoenician word for priest, Bassus. Julius Bassianus also had a younger brother named Iamblichus, whose wife gave birth that same year to a son named Gaius Julius Sulpicius. And closer to home, King Sohamus of Armenia also had a newborn son named Julius Alexander. A son, yes, but likely not an heir. While Sohamus may have dreamed of his son one day succeeding him, the last Armenian king to take his father's crown was nearly two centuries dead. In spring of the following year, 161 AD, word came east of the death of Antoninus Pius at the age of 75. On its heels came a report that was even more unsettling. Pius's adopted successor, 40-year-old Marcus Aurelius, had initially refused to take the purple, and only relented on the condition that imperial powers be divided. Marcus would assume the titles of Augustus, Imperator, and Pontifex Maximus, provided his adopted brother Lucius Verus was hailed as co-Augustus, co-Imperator, and given tribunician authority. To Sohamus, a reluctant emperor uncomfortable with power signaled potential weakness, which might have been academic if the Parthian king Vologases IV hadn't felt the exact same way. In the fall of 161 AD, a Parthian army swept north into Armenia, overcoming local resistance and seizing the capital of Vagarshapat. So Hamas was forced to flee across the Euphrates for the safety of Roman territory. In its place, Vologases installed an Arsacid prince named Aurelius Pacorus as the new King Pacorus I. The designated first responder for Armenian crises was the Roman governor of Cappadocia, Marcus Sedatius Severianus. Learning of the Parthian invasion, Severianus marched a single legion into Armenia, confronting Parthian forces near the headwaters of the Euphrates. But Severianus found himself outmatched by the Parthian general Cosroes. According to Cassius Dio, the Parthians shot down and destroyed the whole force, leaders and all. Severianus was either killed or committed suicide. Cosroes then marched Parthian forces south toward Roman Syria. Somewhere near the Euphrates, the Parthians met the army of the Syrian governor Atidius Cornelianus. Not having fought an actual war in almost 50 years, the eastern legions were soundly defeated and put to disorganized flight. The Parthians then secured a number of river crossings, to be used for reinforcement or retreat. Even more worrisome for Rome, Syrian sympathies appeared divided, and threats of rebellion or Parthian collaboration were considered all too real which, considering how long Rome had held the region, didn't give the empire very high marks in the Hearts and Minds Department. News arrived in early 162 of the nature of Rome's response. The younger co-emperor, 32-year-old Lucius Verus, was coming east to take personal charge of Roman forces and reclaim Armenia from the Parthians. 
Not that he, or Marcus Aurelius, had any actual military experience, which is why they arranged for the most seasoned Roman commanders to join Varus's staff in Antioch. Three full legions, along with additional troops, were pulled from the Rhine and Danube frontiers and sent east to support the campaign. It was a serious response to an imminent threat to a major Roman territory. Except, well, do you have any idea how many cool things there are to see and do between Rome and Antioch? Actually, I don't know myself offhand, but you know who does? The co-emperor Lucius Verus. As a matter of fact, he took his sweet time and went out of his way to make sure he didn't miss a single thing. Eleusinian Mysteries in Athens? Check. Cilician Pleasure Resorts? Check. Asia's Biggest Ball of Twine? Check. The tree stump that kind of looks like Nero if you squint really hard. Check. If it was in the guidebook, Lucius Verus was all over it. Meanwhile, in the TCB department, Marcus Statius Priscus traveled up the Rhine and down the Danube to assume his new post as governor of Cappadocia. Priscus was a vastly experienced general and proconsul who'd fought as a young man in the Bar Kokhba revolt. While Lucius took me days, Priscus did the serious work of getting Roman forces back up and on the offensive. His legend quickly grew to such proportions that it was rumored his war cry alone had killed 27 enemy soldiers. It was literally a year after he decided to come east that Lucius Verus finally arrived in Antioch. Once there, it's an open question which occupied more of his time. Overseeing the inspection, discipline, and training of the legions, or drinking, gambling, and spending time with his new mistress. Luckily, as I mentioned, he had capable subordinates, and 163 was the year that Priscus took the fight to the Parthians. With support from two legions under Marcus Claudius Fronto and Publius Martius Verus, Priscus crossed the Euphrates and marched deep into Armenia. Priscus's crowning achievement was the capture of Artaxata, which had apparently once again become the de facto Armenian capital, and the expulsion of the Parthian puppet king Aurelius Pacorus. On the downside, one reason Priscus was so successful in Armenia is that Parthian troops were busy farther south. And yes, we're looking at you, Osroini. Since Hadrian's withdrawal from the occupied territories, Osroini's old ruling dynasty had returned to power. In 163, the Parthian general Khosroes captured Edessa, deposed the latest dynast, King Manu VIII, and replaced him with a pro-Parthian king named the I. In response, Roman forces marched on Osroini via the southern river crossing at Sura. And it was here, on the south bank of the Euphrates, that a major battle was fought between Roman and Parthian forces. This time, the Syrian legions emerged victorious, capturing Sura and two towns on the north bank. In coordination, Roman forces entered Osroini from Armenia and captured the town of Anthemusius, southwest of Edessa. 
These northern forces, dispatched by Priscus, included the legates Fronto and Varus, and also introduced another key figure, a young Syrian senator commanding the 3rd Gallic Legion named Avidius Cassius. And strap yourselves in, because I'm about to go nuts on Avidius Cassius. Okay, so if genealogy were destiny, Avidius Cassius would basically be king of everything. His ancestors included Tigranes the Great, Herod the Great, King Artavasdes I of Media, King Antiochus IV of Comagene, King Archelaus of Cappadocia, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa, and, oh yeah, the Roman Emperor Augustus. And if you wanted to include relatives by marriage, you could also throw in King Juba II of Mauritania, Queen Pythodorus of Pontus, and Gnaeus Domitius Corbulo. In fact, for what it was worth, Cassius had a much better claim to the Armenian throne than Gaius Julius Sohamus. His closest actual royal relative was his great-grandfather, who'd been king of the minor Cilician territory of Cetus. Cassius himself spent his formative years in Alexandria, where his father, Gaius Avidius Heliodorus, had served as prefect under Antoninus Pius. His family originally hailed from Cyrus in northern Syria, which meant that the current conflict hit pretty close to home. And yes, I've posted his whole crazy family tree up on the Ancient World website. By late 163, when Cassius came on the scene, the year's campaign was finally winding down. While Priscus had established firm control over Armenia, firm enough for Lucius Verus to declare himself Armeniacus, Edessa and eastern Osroene remained in Parthian hands. In a surprising and highly unpopular move, Lucius offered to negotiate a peaceful settlement with King Vologases IV. When the Parthian king outright refused, Lucius found himself dodging accusations of weakness and cowardice. In a bid to compensate, well, maybe overcompensate, Lucius started planning the first Roman invasion of the Parthian Empire in half a century. The scope of the campaign meant that 164 AD was devoted almost entirely to preparation with military operations put on hold. The pause gave Lucius time to marry Marcus Aurelius's 16-year-old daughter Lucilla, as well as construct a brand new Armenian capital. The new city, appropriately named New City, was built 30 miles closer to the Euphrates than Artaxata, an obvious time-saver the next time Rome decided to invade. Once construction was complete, Lucius held a ceremony to reinstall Gaius Julius Sohamus as king of Armenia. The Roman war plan for 165 consisted of two main elements. One army, under Publius Martius Verus, would capture Edessa, depose the Parthian puppet king Wael I, and restore King Manu to the throne. A second army, under Avidius Cassius, would cross the Euphrates at Dura Europos and march on the Parthian capital of Ctesiphon. Varus's forces quickly drove the Parthians from Edessa and pursued them eastward into Adiabene. A second Roman victory at Nisibis forced the Parthian army to flee in disarray. 
In fact, their general Khosrowes only managed to survive by throwing himself into the Tigris and hiding in a cave downstream. The Roman hold on Nisibus would end up lasting for decades and remain a thorn in the side of Roman-Parthian relations. Meanwhile down south, a major battle was fought at Duryaropos. Cassius was eventually able to force the river crossing and make the way clear for the invasion of Parthia. By the end of the year, Cassius had taken Tessaphon and burned the palace of Vologases, then crossed back over the Tigris to surround its sister city of Seleucia. I covered their dual history a few episodes back, but one thing to remember is that Seleucia on the Tigris still considered itself Macedonian, and though content with Parthian rule, it had no particular issue with the Romans. That being the case, the city opened its gates. This turned out to be a huge mistake. Whether under orders from Lucius Verus or on his own initiative, Avidius Cassius ordered the plunder, sacking, and burning of the city. We've mentioned in previous wars times when Seleucia was captured and burned, but apparently this was a whole different animal. For all intents and purposes, Seleucia on the Tigris, a major city with 400,000 inhabitants, was completely destroyed by the Romans. While the incident proved unpopular, it was hard to argue with success. Besides, Cassius mitigated any damage to his reputation by leading his army, ravaged by disease and short on supplies, safe and sound back across the Euphrates. As a reward for their leadership, both Cassius and Publius Martius Verus were named as consuls for 166. They were also elevated to Roman governorships, Cassius in Syria and Verus in Cappadocia. Meanwhile, the co-emperor Lucius Verus took the title of Parthicus Maximus. If the Parthian War wasn't over, it was clearly Rome's to lose. But with troops assembled and momentum on their side, Rome decided to rub some salt in the wound. In 167, Avidius Cassius was ordered to lead Roman troops across the Tigris into Media. It's unclear how many legions were involved, but Cassius likely launched the invasion from the new FOB at Nisibis. The Median campaign was kind of a big deal. The last time a Roman army marched that far east was two centuries earlier under Mark Antony, using a battle plan designed by Julius Caesar. And if you listen to episode B1, you know just how wonderfully that all worked out. Still, for a young and ambitious commander, with more kings in his lineage than you can shake a scepter at, being basically ordered to follow in Alexander's footsteps must have been like a dream come true. In the end, no matter how far he got, even if he just holed up in Frospa knocking back beers with the troops, Cassius probably penetrated farther east than any previous Roman commander. In fact, he may have gone farther east than any Roman commander before or after him. Every report back to Antioch seemed magnified by the distance, and rumors began to make the rounds that he'd even crossed the Indus, which would mean transiting a hostile Parthia and invading the Kushan Empire. So, yeah, probably not. 
But even if he wasn't the source of the rumors, Cassius likely did little to squelch them. And when he returned to Syria later that year, he was greeted with something approaching awe. Before long, Cassius had settled into his new position as Roman provincial governor, an exceptional honor for a man of 37. But then, who better to keep an eye on the Parthian frontier than the general who dealt them so many defeats? Actually, it's important to mention that while no formal peace was established, Rome also limited its post-war occupation to the city of Nisibis, a stone's throw from the client kingdoms of Armenia and Osirwini. This had the effect of minimizing both Roman overextension and Parthian resentment. The conquests of Optimus Trajan had clearly been instructive, even if mainly in showing the Romans what not to do. As for Lucius Verus, the junior co-emperor had returned to Rome toward the end of 166, once the campaign's outcome was certain. Along with Trajan's earlier example, Lucius's three-year stay in Antioch confirmed the impression that a good portion of the empire could be ruled from the east. It was a lesson that later emperors and imperial usurpers would factor into their plans. At his restored Armenian court, King Sohamus received word of the lavish triumph held in Rome to commemorate the eastern victory. For the first time in nearly half a century, all the ancient forms were on display, including both Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus riding together in a chariot with scepters and crowns and faces painted dark vermilion. Before and behind them marched a veritable army of senators, priests, noble captives, and legionaries. One new element was introduced from the east. It had been carried by the soldiers from the ruins of Seleucia, like a spectral retribution for their crime. By the time it ran its course, the Antonine Plague would claim more Roman lives than Hannibal or Mithridates or Boudicca or Arminius or all the long Roman history of conquests, purges, and blood-soaked civil wars. In its wake, it would leave a decimated administration, a ravaged army, and a Roman emperor consigned to an early grave.